Monday, January the 12th, 2015. The month is already half gone, and here we are back with episode number two of Behind the Lens. I am once again joined by my wonderful co-host, Greg, and I'm not even going to say his last name because I'm going to screw it up. <laughs> Greg Srisavasti. And this has been a big yes. week, a big week on yeah. many fronts, um, and we're going to get into that. But for those of you just tuning in for the second time or the first time, Welcome back. Welcome in. Tune in, log on, call in. Um, we have a lot of good stuff for you uh, on Behind the Lens. And the, and the show is exactly just that. It's behind the lens and below the line because there's so many people that they're only interested in the A-list talent out there, which God knows they're very important. But it's the people that put them out there and make them look good that we like to focus on. The directors, the cinematographers, the stuntmen, the producers, the the focus pullers, the costume designers. Last week, uh, we were privileged to have a lot of interview content from Rob Marshall, Colleen Atwood, uh, Wyatt Smith, and everybody at Into the Woods. So this week, we're going to take a look at the Golden Globes. We also have a very special caller at 11.15, writer-director Jeremy Grelick, uh, who has just written and directed his first feature, The Wedding Ringer with Kevin Hart. Um, which I have to say, it sure does ring my funny bone with laughter. Well, that's one, one of the great things about your show is that you're you're going to focus on a lot of people. The below-the-line people, to me, are the real anchors of the filmmaking industry. And if you're a movie buff like you and I, that's what we really live for. We love interviewing the stars and whatnot, but it's really the filmmakers, the storytellers, the scribes who create these stories for these actors to live in. That's what makes – that, to me, is movie magic. Once you get really mm-hmm. deep into the process, which your show does. Well, so. I, we try. You, you and I try. <laughs> yeah. um, a big shout out to Joel Amos, movie fanatic. Joel was supposed to be with us today, but had an unfortunate dog tri- tripping accident this morning. So Joel couldn't make it. Joining us in our second half hour will be Ned Airbar with Metro UK, who's going to join in the fun and frolic talking about last night's Golden Globes, of which we had a few surprises, some pleasant. Some not so pleasant, but we'll get into all that. Right now, though, I have to talk about this. The past week has been a very sad week in Hollywood. We lost a lot of legendary people this past week. Um, Rod Taylor, everybody knows Rod Taylor from The Time Machine and The Birds. And like I was saying, that Twilight Zone episode, Uh, the astronaut episode with Hutton, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely amazing. Um, Great presence. Great cheekbones. And just, he's a great actor. He was a great actor. He was too. a great, great actor. And actually, um, first time I was introduced to Rod Taylor was through the time machine when I was, I think, seven or eight years old. Wow. Watched it with my dad. And I, I mean, I loved Eloy and the Morlocks. I loved all of that. But I was more interested in who is the man that built the time machine. And my dad said, Well, why don't you go read about it? Read H.G. Wells. And you were it, reading H.G. Wells at, it, at a young age? I started very really? young trying yeah. to read it. Um, oh. And that 
really sparked my interest in sci-fi and moved me into things like the John Carter series mm. um, with with uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs. So, and all of that started with Rod Taylor. The thing about Taylor is just from my limited knowledge of watching his films, he had such an expressive face. Whenever that dramatic moment, that turn mm-hmm. of that mental screw comes on, he's, he was really believable no matter what genre he tackled. Mm-hmm. So, And, of course, yeah. in The Birds. So, <laughs> okay, granted, those of you will come to know I am – my greatest fear in the world is birds. I hate birds. I am petrified of birds. I have been attacked by birds. And those of you out there listening that know me are probably laughing yourself silly right now because you know the horror stories. Um, he was so mm-hmm. suave and yeah. so in control through that movie. And that was not an easy shoot for anybody because of Hitchcock's desire to be so authentic with using many more real birds than Tippi Hedren ever thought were going to be used. I mean, they were tying meat to cameras and throwing it out there to get the birds coming at the cameras. But one of the interesting things with the birds, do you know that nobody is ever seen with any bird droppings on them? Just one of those trivial fun facts. Yes. And probably people think that's actually something that happened throughout because of, I guess, their... Their memory. Right. And Inaccurate memory, that yeah. is. Oh, interesting. So, and I think TCM is going to be showing the birds uh, as part of their memoriam to Rod Taylor, uh, I think, in the, coming up this week. We also lost the lovely Anita Ekberg. Who can ever forget? La Dolce Vita. La Dolce Vita. Yeah, and, you, and the fountain scene. You know, an old high school mate of mine actually emailed me through Facebook and asked me, what are my 10 favorite Italian films? Mm-hmm. I forgot La Dolce Vita. Fellini's La, Do- oh, La Dolce Vita. I love. Yeah. And what's, and ironically, Eckberg and Taylor were engaged at one point. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. They wow. were actually hot and steamy couple and were actually engaged. See, this is why I'm actually sitting in so I can learn all these <laughs> things about Hollywood history because you actually have a through line between its past and its present. Which is which is really wonderful. I remember the first time I saw La Dolce Vita. I was at UCLA film school and film class, that is, and watching that scene by the fountain, and also the ending when you realize Marcello is going to go a certain way. It's a heartbreaking film, mm-hmm. but that sequence to me. I mean, when you're when you're a kid who's nineteen and twenty, nineteen and twenty, watching Eckberg by the fountain, it leaves an indelible impression for the rest of your life. Well, having yeah. seen that, did you see earlier uh, in the last portion of 2014, did you see Elsa and Fred with Shirley MacLaine and Christopher Plummer? You know, I totally missed that. Oh, you have to see that. Yeah. Anybody that hasn't seen it, there is this exquisite, timeless, classic sequence where Plummer and MacLaine recreate the fountain scene from La Dolce Vita. And it oh, is it wow. is so touching it will bring you to tears it is it's magical absolutely magical and then uh, sadly a dear friend of mine we lost this week one of hollywood's greatest stunt uh stuntmen bill hart um this one i took very personally uh bill hart was one of the guys from the stuntman's association that welcomed me into the fold when i was the new kid on the block when i came out here 34 years ago He's the one that introduced me to Don Coscarelli uh, doing Don's first film, The Beastmaster. Um, Bill has done westerns. He's done everything from The Wild Bunch to Beastmaster, Young Guns, Lethal Weapon 3. His most famous stunt, you all know it if you know westerns or if you saw The Wild Bunch, uh, 
the men on the horse on the bridge, real dynamite, blew it up. Bill was one of those, went flying off with the horse. Um, well, that must mean a lot to you to have someone who actually opens a few doors for you while you're actually learning more about the business. And, you know, because most people, they come to L.A. and the doors are shut. And, you know, I'm sure that must have you know. I was very, very fortunate that all the guys in the Stuntman's Association, legends, Al Wyatt, Bill Hart, Bill Catching, and my dear, dear, dear friend, Neil Summers, um, they, just by happenstance would introduce me to people and they all liked me and they were very kind to me and through them I met a lot of people, a lot of connections that opened doors for me. And I will be forever grateful and but losing Bill this week, very, very, very sad. Then we also lost a true Titan, uh, Samuel Goldwyn Junior. Mm-hmm. Um, those of you know the name Goldwyn. MGM, Metro Goldwyn Mayor, um, by Samuel Go- Samuel Goldwyn Sr., one of the founders. Um, Sam Goldwyn, a phenomenal producer. The last film that he produced was Secret Life of Walter Mitty, uh, the Ben Stiller remake yeah. in 2013. His father had produced the original 1947. Um, he's produced the Academy Awards, Mystic Pizza. He was one yeah, of those wow. people that yeah. helped propel Julia Roberts. And he's got his children. He's got Peter who runs Samuel Goldwyn Films. He's got his son, Tony, that everybody knows Tony Goldwyn from Scandal. I had a chance to talk to Tony earlier last year about the Goldwyn family legacy and what it meant to him. And was it a help? Was it a hindrance? And I think now I think people might appreciate hearing what he had to say. Definitely. Have you found it to be, you know, something you have to internally live up to, people expect you to live up to, or has it helped shape you to define who you are as opposed to what the legacy is? Both, I would say. It was very difficult at first because it was a big mantle to carry to come into this business and, Mm -hmm. you know, the bar for success was high and people automatically were like, oh, yeah, you're in... So you have to kind of fight to... uh, stake your own territory and improve yourself. But once I had kind of done that, um, now it's a, a really extraordinary thing to be a part of that legacy. I feel incredibly blessed and lucky, and I've learned a tremendous amount from being, you know, from my grandfather and from my dad and my brothers who were in, in, in the business. And to be a part of a multi-generational family business, in a sense, and my grandfather's one of the people that started it, so that's kind of extraordinary now that I've kind of made my bones in it and I'm making my own contribution. Uh, I feel very privileged um, to 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 have kind of to be to be a part of it um, and to, and to find uh, a commonality, like in a certain approach, that is something that I learned either directly or indirectly, kind of from my grandfather and my dad about independence and making your own way and. And doing work that's, you know, hopefully has some class that to it, uh, and striving for quality, you know, and and um, a lot of the things that my grandpa stood for, make fewer better, or things, or things that I just kind of instinctively gravitate towards, uh, great writing, great writers, and um, working with great people was something he always did, and so it's interesting, almost unconsciously, I've, there's a common aesthetic that was handed down, and that's. Um, 
So that has shaped me for sure. So, uh, you know, my heart goes out to Tony and his and his family. I mean, and Tony is just such a phenomenal director and yeah. performer in his own right. A lot of people may remember him. Uh, they first took notice of him in Ghost. Ghost. As the... As the not-so-nice best friend. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, so, it has been... And there are so many others that we've lost in the past week as well. Some composers, uh, some other guys behind the scene, Andre Crouch, gospel yeah. singer. Yeah. So, we're not, we're not starting off... 2015 too well in that regard but one thing's for sure the heavens are certainly a lot brighter this week yeah definitely than they were uh at the end so prep getting ready for uh jeremy gorelick who'll be calling in to us shortly let's take a look at a movie that's going to come out this friday greg hasn't seen it yet i've not seen it but you have to see it and i will not ring any kind of wedding anytime soon in my life personally so well, see, this is why you want you want to see the wedding ringer so that right, you can right. learn how to be a best man. Or I can learn how to sit in a movie theater and continue to laugh at Mr. Hart's comedy. Well, and that's, and, uh, one, of, that's one of the great things with the wedding ringer. I mean, the cast is amazing. We've got Kevin Hart, Josh Gad, Kelly uh, Kuko Sweeting, Olivia Thurlby, Mimi Rogers, Ken Howard, Cloris Leachman, Jennifer Lewis, uh, Affion Crockett, just wow. – and then – a certain number 12, the football fans out there might remember. A guy named Namath wearing that green Jets thing. This, com- a- this coming from a Philadelphia <laughs> Eagles fan, mind you. Um, this is it, – it's a fun, fun, fun film. It is the first R-rated film that Kevin Hart has done. Wow. So this – we're going to talk – when Jeremy gets on the line, um, we're going to talk about that because this is a big jump. This is a big leap. Um, so – Right now, we're going to take a short break. We're going to come back. Hopefully, Jeremy will be on. We've got a, I have a great interview clip with uh, Kevin Hart. We'll be back after these messages. Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And welcome back to our next segment. Greg is here with me. We are going behind the lens and below the line today. Starting with, we're going to look at talk about Golden Globes uh, in the second half of the program. But right now, let's bounce into uh, the Wedding Ringer. Opens this Friday in theaters everywhere. Kevin Hart, Josh Gad, Kaylee Kuko Sweeting, Ken Howard, Mimi Rogers, Cloris Leachman, Jennifer Leachman, Jennifer Lewis, Affian Crockett, Joe Namath, Two Tall Jones. This is. It is a fantastic, fantastic film. It Olivia is... Thurlby from Dread, underrated yeah. film from the last couple of oh, years. Was that not one so of the great? Under- yes. That film is one of, honestly, yeah. one of the best remakes ever. 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 Wish list is I, I wish that they made a sequel, but it probably won't happen. But. Well, I would love to see it. the cinematography here yeah. again. Cinematography and the VFX, mm. absolutely stunning in that movie. And Olivia so underrated in her so performance. Underrated, she I, that. I yeah. really thought Olivia would break out into being one of the next female action stars. Yeah, that's one of those films. Five to ten years from now, people are going to continue to revisit and say, "Why did we miss out on this one when it came out? Why did mm-hmm. Why did it not do better?" 
So. Well, we're seeing that with the original, with Judge Dredd, with Stallone yeah. and Sandra Bullock. Yeah. That's yeah. very much what's happening. As a matter of fact, it's running on three encore channels this weekend on Time Warner Cable. <laughs> um, and no, I've not been paid to say that. Uh, so <laughs> but just it is a fun, fun film. Um, let's go ahead and we're going to play my, li- my Little Question with Kevin Hart about being a best man for the second time. Real life, who makes the best man and great best man is understanding that his job is to take whatever pressure is on the groom to be off. It's his job to send the groom to the altar with his mind free and clear and ready to step into a world of matrimony uh, in the most positive mindset possible. Um, in this particular case in the film, uh, the job of a best man would be to create whatever facade is needed to fulfill the groom's world that he has personally created. Doug uh, Doug put my character in a position where he made up so much stuff that I had to jump into a world that was already created. Um, going out and finding these groomsmen is something that wasn't of the norm for me. That's why jumping up this opportunity to a golden tux was not something that I automatically did. The number that he offered me was just right. It was enough. Um, but I had to create this world to fit into what he's already made his wife to be believed. And that was a task, but going into that task is where we were able to have so much fun and where we were able to leave so much room for these groomsmen. Um, and I think that's where the funny comes in. It's not just so much Kelly, Josh, and myself. I think it was in these groomsmen because they didn't have words on the page. We had to put them in situations and they shined in those situations. So my job was making his story seem like the truth and the film. And I think as crazy as that world was that we created, we grounded it enough to make it believable. And and we gave these characters depth and levels. So, and we have the wonderful co-writer and director, Jeremy Gorelick, on the line to follow up on the pearls of wisdom that Kevin, very sobering and serious Kevin, had to say about the film. Hello, Jeremy. Hello, how are you, darling? I am fine. How are you? You are on Behind the Lens. I am so thrilled. Do you know you are the very first director to be calling in on, on my new show? Wow, that is exciting. And I'm, uh, congratulations on your new show. I'm very excited. I hope, uh, I hope ladies go up after this. Well, I just, I hope the wedding ringer does really well at the box office this Friday because this is a fun, 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 fun film. It just rings in the new year with laughter. It rings my funny bone. You hit all the right marks here. Well, thank you so much for saying that. We, we try to make a funny movie, make a movie that made us laugh and make our friends laugh. And um, I think uh, as far as the box office goes, it's really nerve-wracking, but it's totally out of our hands at this point. So, um, so yeah, I, I mean, I hope it does well, uh, but but uh, it's out of out of my hands at this point. Other well, than me emailing a lot of my friends and family and telling them to go, but I don't know if we have people well, I know uh, will make a difference. Well, of course, you have a lot of great things to entice people to come and see the film uh, this coming weekend. You've got Kevin Hart. You've got Josh Gad. You've got... Ken Howard, you've got Cloris Leachman, Jennifer Lewis, Affion Crockett, Colin Kane, and some guy named Joe Namath. You know, it's interesting that you, you saved that Joe Namath for, for last. Um, 
today in history, I don't know if your, your fans know this, but in 1969, Joe Namath predicted that he was going to win the Super Bowl, and, um, and nobody believed him. And he guaranteed, he was the very first athlete on record to guarantee a win and then follow it up with a win. Um, so that is that was uh, that was today in 1969. Oh my God! It was very exciting. That was his Babe Ruth moment. That was his Babe Ruth moment. That was definitely his Babe Ruth moment. Although Babe Ruth, you know, Babe Ruth, uh, uh, they were they were favored, and, and uh, I guess the double point is that what you're referring to the mm-hmm. double double home run. Yep. In Chicago. Yep. Yeah. Well, that was uh, that was an amazing moment too. But yes. Uh, I'm hoping Joe Nam can guarantee some sort of a box office after this report. But he isn't doing that. <laughs> Not yet. You know, I was thinking maybe one of the best assets for your film is that it seems like Gad and Hart have an, an innate chemistry. Was that something that made your process a lot easier, just that kind of chemistry between just natural comedians and actors? Oh, well, it made it much, it made it much easier uh, during the shoot itself because I, my job was so easy. All I needed to do was yell action yeah. and tell those guys we were actually filming because they were, their chemistry was amazing both on screen and off screen. Um, and they would just had everybody laughing and they were always performing to everybody around. So I just had an actor on, 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 um, on screen. However, it made my job a lot harder once we were in the editing room because we just had so much fun, great stuff uh, that we couldn't use that we had to leave on the editing room floor um, wow. as opposed to if you didn't get enough stuff uh, in, the, you know, in the editing room, we'd be in trouble. So it was, it was great. I was really glad to have that on it. Well, and you've got an embarrassment of riches here with actors that are so good. You know, they, you know, they can shoot from the hip. They're full of improv, um, but you've got a team of editors that worked on The Wedding Ringer that have done an amazing job, not just with the comedy, but you have some very complex, you've got complex football sequences in there, and you have a dance sequence that will rival anything that Dancing with the Stars will ever show us on TV. So can you talk a little bit, Jeremy, about your team of editors? You've got Jeff Groth, Shelley Westerman, and Byron Wong that just do an amazing eclectic and energetic cut on this film um yeah i'd also like to i'd also like to add in um alana lewis and ayana sanders who are the editor's assistants oftentimes you know the editor gets the credit Mm. um and the editor's assistants often doing a tremendous amount of work sort of with like a first pass and they hand it up to the editor and the editor then does a pass um, on this, on this, we just had a tremendous team of editors. Um, it started with it started with uh, Jeff Gross, who edited Project X, um, and Todd Phillips. And he did Hangover too with Todd Phillips, and I, I worked with Todd Phillips a lot. And when I knew I wanted a great editor I, uh, for comedy, I immediately called Todd, who's just been a mentor of mine my whole life, um, and said, "Who should I have edit this?" And he said, "Jeff Gross." So I reached out to Jeff. Thankfully, he was available. He came, and he did an amazing job. Um, but unfortunately, he had to leave to go work on the Entourage movie because he, um, I guess, his, he started uh, by cutting all of the Entourage shows. So um, he had a loyalty there. But he did a great job, and um, 
we brought in, we, we promoted Byron Wong, who was um, Jeff's, Jeff's assistant, who did so much of the cutting uh, of, of that football sequence, of the dance sequence. And he, he came in and did some editing, and then we brought in um, Shelly, Shelly uh, Weston, who's amazing, who came in to sort of put the finishing touches on everything. And, uh, and collectively, we had a great group. And truthfully, Clint Culpepper, who uh, runs Screen Camps, he's a, he's a brilliant editor. Um, and if he was not running the studio, he probably would be a, a director or an editor. Um, he came in and really had some great ideas and great ways to trim and tighten up the, the film. Well, now, this was no walk in the park or easy journey for you and your writing partner, Jay Lavender. How did you let everybody know the process you went through to finally see Will Packer step in and get the wedding ringer made? Because this has been a very long journey for you and a real passion project. Yeah, it's almost um, it's a little bit surreal, to be honest with you. I've been working on this thing with Jay. I guess I called him. I called him probably 14 years ago. And I was living in Dublin working for Joel Schumacher um, on a movie called Veronica Gary. And I remember pitching the idea to Jay Lavender. And um, he loved the idea. We always talked about writing something together. And he loved the idea. And we started uh, just sending stuff back and forth from, from Los Angeles to, to uh, Dublin. And um, just, we went through hundreds and hundreds of drafts of this thing. So many different casts were uh, you know, cast were uh, attached to it at some point. There were so many different versions of the movie. Now, you know, there's been a lot of comparisons to Hitch and I Love You Man and Wedding Crashers and all those movies. Um, this was written before any of those things, so uh, it was it was interesting. Um, and now, 14 years later, to get the movie made is it surreal. To, you know, it's a dream come true. And, um, yeah, Will Packer did an amazing job pushing it together. Adam Fields did a great job, another producer of ours. Um, and uh, and Clint Culpepper, who runs the studio, just really sort of willed it to, to get done. And I'm extremely thankful to Clint for giving me the freedom that he did on this movie. You know, just a curious question. When you actually see your film in front of an audience and you hear their laughter or their just organic reaction to your narrative... Is that kind of a feeling that that's really hard to express, or you know? You know, it's it's the it's the only reason. It's the only reason I do this, and the only reason that um, I'm still doing it. Mm-hmm. It is the, it is better than not that I've tried every drug uh, in life, <laughs> but it's better than any drug or any high that you could possibly imagine. For me. Um, just the idea of, of, of making somebody laugh for any comedian is the biggest reward. Um, and, you know, have jokes that you wrote 14 years ago get laughs now. It's, you know, I've been waiting 14 years to, to hear the, that laughter, and it's just, it's, it's tremendous. It's, it's exhilarating, it's inspiring. And really, you know, sometimes I show up at the theater. I've been to a bunch of screenings, and sometimes I'll just go introduce it, and and I and I'll have a meeting or something afterwards. So I, I'm supposed to just go introduce the film, and then I walk out. But I'm always like, oh, you know what? Why don't I just wait? Why don't I just wait like a minute just to see if you know, just for that very first laugh, because that's how I, you know, 
just said, that's how I get my high. And, and then it'll be like, oh, they laughed at that joke. Why don't I say another five minutes? Uh, why don't I just say, we're the next joke. And then, um, and I end up staying for like 20 minutes. And, and, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it, the laughter is what, what makes it work. Well, something that I find really interesting, Jeremy, is that you wrote the core of this 14 years ago. With the changing times, social mores, the zeitgeist out there, how many how many script changes did you have to do in order for the jokes to be relevant, or were they always timeless? You know, it's really interesting. As far as the jokes go, as far as the jokes go, we didn't have to change much. Um, the jokes themselves were. I don't. I don't think I really changed any jokes. Um, I did change the the reveal of um, the double reveal twist of Edmundo and his girlfriend slash boyfriend Angel. That was that was that was up, updated because I felt like that was a joke that probably would have been funny 14 years ago, and today sort of um, to, today I felt like we needed to put a new spin on it, um, and then as, as far as the relevance of the concept, to me, it's more relevant than it was even 14 years ago because with social media, with Facebook and Instagram, and the need to be the need for to have all these instant likes and have more friends and more followers, you sort of start to lose what it is to actually be a real friend, and you start to you know when you're when you're trying to connect with hundreds and thousands of people. As who, who are your so-called friends, which is nice on a lot of levels, you start to not lose the attention of what may or may not be your best friend or your closest friend. And I think that's, um, that's, that's that. And I think that's something that uh, is extremely relevant today. And I feel like people who are adults, especially men, don't have best friends anymore. Mm-hmm. They have people that can say, oh, this guy's my best friend from growing up, and every once in a while they'll send an email back and forth to each other about the game. But I feel like as, a, as an adult male, like, it's, you know, we, we do need friendship, and we take it for granted. So I have to ask you before, I know you have other things to do today, but I have to know, what is the most surreal moment in this whole filming experience? I have an idea of what I think it is. But I want to know what you think uh, is the most surreal moment of uh, of this whole process for you. The most surreal, I, for me, it's not even uh, not even a question. It's the Joe Namath experience. Um, <laughs> you know, as a Jet fan growing up, I was such a massive Joe Namath fan. And I was a kid when we wrote this movie, and I just said, oh, it wouldn't be funny if Joe Namath played played the bad best friend and comes in to play play football against our Greensmen. And, you know, 13 years later, I'm sitting with Joe Namath and Beverly convincing him to do the movie. And, um, and then, and he's telling me not to take Advil for my, for my uh, knees. I should do all natural. I'm like, all right, I'm done. I'm not taking Advil again. Um, and we're talking about Chattanooga Choo Choo, some of the earlier film work, and we're talking about family, and he was just the greatest guy in the world, and uh, and then he came down to the set, and I feel like, I feel truthfully, it's surreal, I can't believe you're here, and this is a it's pretty amazing. 
Well, I think I told you the other day that the minute I saw number 12 on screen, it's like my jaw dropped, uh, my eyes went agape, and I'm like, oh, my God, that's Joe Namath. <laughs> I knew the moment that he said yes, the moment that he said yes and that he would be in the movie, I knew that we had a special movie. I knew there was something special about our movie, um, and it was just great. And just, just, it really was, people, you know, People talk about the challenges of making films and how difficult it is, and it's definitely difficult, but we had a pretty good time. We had a really good time, and, you know, I, I can't really recall, other than getting the movie made while we were shooting, any major, major problems. Well, all I know, Jeremy, is you are definitely a director that everybody needs to have on their radar what you have delivered here with The Wedding Ringer, it is tight. It is fast. It is funny. You don't want to see it end. You have no loose ends. And quite honestly, I would love to see a sequel. Well, um, we'll see how it does this Friday. We'll see how it does this Friday. We've been talking about a sequel. I think everyone is a little, um, you know, I think everyone's a little super uh, superstitious and they don't, they don't want to jinx. <laughs> we don't want to change it, but um, we've been we've been already talking about it a little bit. Well, and it'd be fun. And, and I and, and I, I I set it up with that trip to uh, the, the the guy trip. Um, so we, I think we've got some fun ideas for the people. Well, and it is it's a great film for this coming weekend because you're going up against you've got Black Hat, which is dark, serious, a thriller. You've got Little Accidents. Black Hat, the Hasidic Jewish. Uh, film, right? Uh, that, that's one with uh, Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> yeah, I'm just making it. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got Black Hat. <laughs> we stop. Um, on Saturday, that would work. Not on Friday. Um, we've, got, we've got Black Hat. We've got Little Accidents, which is another taut thriller. American Sniper, Clint Eastwood, a very heavy dramatic film. We've got Paddington Bear for the whole family. But if people want to laugh, the Wedding Ringer, this is the one. You've got the comedy wow. market well, com- cornered so this weekend. Those, um, first of all, American Sniper, to be totally honest, like, I don't want to plug the competition, but, but I thought it's pretty damn good. <laughs> you got And Brad Cooper, I worked with Brad on the first hangover. His performance um, in American Sniper is, is probably second best performance in his life behind his performance in the hangover. Um, but but uh, he's, he's truly amazing. And, um, you know, I think that we, it's an important movie for people to see. But, uh, yes, uh, Wedding Ringer is a much funnier film than American Sniper. I could promise everybody that. Well, this week, everybody can see them all. You can see a family film and go, oh, Paddington's so cute and adorable. And you can see these darker, heavier, more dramatic films. And then everybody can go see... The wedding ringer and just laughs themselves silly. Well, that would be uh, that would be amazing. Um, I I do feel like um, I do feel like it would be great a uh, great to get a big laugh uh, with everything that's going on in the world and and all these serious movies, which are always good to see serious movies. But yes, for sure, if you want to go laugh and have a great time, bring your friends, bring your family, throw a party. Um, Jeremy, thank you so, so much. I can't wait to see what you come up with next. And I will talk to you soon, my friend. Take care. Thanks, Jeremy.
And that was Jeremy Gorelick, writer-director of The Wedding Ringer. We're going to take a commercial break and then come back and talk Golden Globes. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is the number one newspaper in Culver City. Covering local news, politics, and community events. With sports by Mitch Chortkoff and movie reviews by Debbie Lynn Elias, Culver City Observer is the place to go to be in the know. When you think Culver City and the heart of Screenland, think Culver City Observer. When you think movies and movie reviews, think Culver City Observer. Culver City Observer, a division of Arizona Newspaper Group, is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And welcome back to Behind the Lens. I am Debbie Lynn Elias, and sitting here with me is my partner in crime today. Greg Srisavosti. And we are about to have Ned Ned Airbar (laughs) uh, join us, and we're going to talk Golden Globes. Ned, are you there? I am here. Hello. Good morning. You forgot to mention esteemed writer and filmmaker. Yes, esteemed writer, director. This is your enabler you're talking to. (laughs) Um, Well, this seems a funny thing. (laughs) (laughs) I am so glad that you could call in and join us today. Sadly, we don't we don't have your smiling face here in front of us, but I know you're chained to a desk today. Yes, and a, a little worn out from last night's. Oh, oh, you were in you were amidst the frivolity last night. Oh uh, no, I was I was making my own frivolity. It's the only way you can get through an awards show. Ah, <laughs> uh huh. So, what do you think of the awards show? Let's start. Let's start first. We have to mention the host and their opening monologue. Yes. Um, I am I am a huge Tina Fey and Amy Poehler fan, and I've enjoyed all of their work hosting the very all of their award show works. I just felt this was not their strongest performance. And I've got to agree with you. I think I was even social mediaing that last night that I thought you know for their third third time should have been a charm. This kind of fell flat on many fronts. Well, it's hard to top that gravity joke from the previous year, that Clooney yeah. gravity joke. It's hard to live up to that joke. Well, I think. Go ahead. Um, I, th- well, I think the I think the, this year their Clooney joke was again their highlight. Right. So at least they have that going for them. Um, but I thought the thing that surprised me the most about them was they did the traditional award show host thing this year that they've avoided before, which is disappearing after the first half hour. Yeah, you kept wanting to know where'd they go, where'd they go, and they weren't coming back, and that I thought was disappointing. Um, I was a little. I, I'm not sure how the Margaret Cho North Korea thing played yeah. out. That's She's been great as Kim Jong Un before on Thirty Rock, mm-hmm. but this just kind of fell flat. Yeah, it just and trying to do the whole selfie thing. Come on, nobody's going to top Ellen in the Oscars with the selfie. So, yeah, well, she was also making a joke about the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which I thought was probably too inside baseball for the for the home audience. And. The Hollywood Farm Press will obviously say, well, no, that joke's not about us. Um, at least many of the members we know will say that. Now, uh, now, did you have personal highlights from watching the Globes? Were there moments that really stood out for you in, in a good way? Uh, well, my, I think my, my favorite joke of the night was um, their joke about Selma, uh, just as far as <laughs> straight delivery and content, when they said that it was a film about the uh, civil rights 
that has now been solved and is not a problem anymore. So <laughs> written, yeah. I'm, I'm surprised there wasn't more reference to Paris. Did because you write for Metro UK, and Metro is global. Well, we write for Metro in France too. So. Well, yeah. So weren't you? I found it a bit surprising that there wasn't really more mention made about the issue of free speech and the terrorism and uh, that took place over there. Well, I mean, I'm not sure an award show is necessarily... That, I mean, I could have seen it worked into a few more acceptance speeches, but, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I, th- I thought the, the president of the HFPA's speech about it was, was a nice touch, but also kind of weird to hear it coming from, um, not, to, not to damn my own people, but a, a bunch of entertainment journalists. It felt a little self-important, mm-hmm. but I did like the more subtle references, like um, like Helen Mirren's uh, pin, and a lot of people were wearing Je uh, Suis Charlie pins or, or little things on their purses or cell phones. Um, so I felt like the presence was there, but but at the same time, it just you know it it didn't necessarily seem like the right venue. And, but and at the same time, the whole issue of freedom of speech and in light of the Sony hack in North Korea, it really just speaks to the industry quite strongly, which surprised me why there wasn't more reference. Hmm. I was expecting more Sony jokes. Um, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We tell more Sony jokes in the backstage bar than, than which is across the street. Um, so, so let's talk about some of the winners. Any big surprises for you? Uh, for me, yeah, uh, definitely. There were. Um, I was pleasantly surprised by. Um, I want to start with uh, television first, even though it's a. This is a t- ostensibly a movie show. Um, I was oh, pleasantly it's, surprised it's, it's by, a whatever. by trans- <laughs> uh, transparent and winning for Amazon, which um, right. gives Amazon now the distinction of being a network that has so far won every single Golden Globe it's ever been nominated for. Mm-hmm. Um, and just what and Jeffrey Tambor's speech I thought was an emotional highlight of the night. No, that it was absolutely amazing, and this an award for Jeffrey was so long in coming, so long in coming, so long, so well deserved, and I mean, kudos to Jill Soloway who never ceases to disappoint. Hmm. Also, in TV, um, I found it fascinating that none of the big three networks won anything. <laughs> Even more interesting is Disney didn't win anything all night. <laughs> well. Um, but on, on, the, on the movie side, again, I guess this sort of aligns nicely with the Netflix and Amazon and cable surge. Um, it was also a great night for, for indie film, which you don't always see at the Golden Globe. Was it, was it not absolutely a shocker with some of these wins? I mean, best original score. I am so thrilled. Uh, Johan Johansson for Theory of Everything uh, picked up the best original score. Everybody was so sure it was probably going to go to Desplat or to Antonio Sanchez for Birdman. Mm-hmm. No, that was that was that was great to see, and he was also it was fun to watch him win. And it's such a beautiful score. It's very lilting. It's very hopeful. Um, it has a very light touch against such the darkness of the disease that ravages Stephen Hawking. So I mean, it's stunning. Um, what, what about the Linklater Night? The Linklater Boyhood. It, is Boyhood one of your favorite films of last year? Yes, easily one of my favorite films of last year. Um, it was it was it was a great. I I, I loved it. You know, it's one of those ones that that uh, admittedly made me cry. Um, mm. I have I have some issues with it that are very nitpicky, but I don't think detract from its its quality. And and uh, I, I'm also I like living in a world where a, a weird little Richard Linklater experiment is an awards juggernaut. 
Well, and speaking of this awards juggernaut, um, I had a chance to do uh, an exclusive with Eller Coltrane, who plays the boy in Boyhood. Um, Earlier last year, I just saw him again on Saturday at the Spirit Award nominees brunch. Um, But when I talked to him, and we talked again about this on Saturday, um, creating this character of Mason and... In fe- where does Eller begin, where does Mason begin, and how the two fused in this process? I mean, I, I think it was... The thing I'm kind of thinking about now is that it was, you know, it, I, the only... Like, the, art, the the process of creating something and throwing myself into, like, expression is really the only the only thing in life that gives me any kind of peace and... And so I, I, looking back, you know, I think having, you know, having this project to, to go back to year after year and really, it was just an, like a, an outlet to, to kind of throw myself into and express, you know, express these kind of things, even if, you know, it's earlier on, it was, you know, it was more kind of Rick's, you know, Rick's idea. I mean, obviously right. it's all, it's Rick's project, but, you know, at, as I got older, I had a lot more, you know, input into, into kind of who Mason was and. And you know how that character became crafted, but even still, just being there and being you know throwing my emotions into it was was, was very therapeutic and and definitely set the you know set the tone I think mm-hmm. for what you know the person I want to be and mm-hmm. what I you know what I crave in life and what I want to do with my life you know it definitely kind of was a lot you know I was really. My parents were artists as well, so I kind of get it from every direction. You have but, that, the vibe, yeah. <laughs> all of that for your life. So, yeah. I, I, I Did you find it difficult, <laughs> especially when you were younger, going back to the same character just for a few days every year? Not, not really. I mean, because you know, because we did have so much time, mm-hmm. and you know. Rick would always meet up with, you know, take me to lunch at least once or twice, you know, in the year between between the shoots and kind of just, you know, tell me where he was at and where the, you know, where what was going to be happening next, you know, in the next episode or the next filming um, and where the character was at and, you know, just kind of what kind of things I should be paying more attention to in my life to kind of use, you know, mm-hmm. dynamics, social dynamics and different kind of information from my life to you know, used to build the character. So it was, I, I was always, we were always kind of in the process mm-hmm. of getting into character, you know, and kind of figuring out who, who the character is. So I had a lot of time to prepare. You know? So, I mean, for Eller, I mean, we watched him grow up on screen over this process. Are you still there, Ned? I am. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. We okay. had a we had a momentary glitch. No. So I mean, for Eller, we got to see Eller grow up. I mean, it's great the accolades, the win for Patricia Arquette. But here again, we have a seasoned, experienced actress. Same with Ethan Hawke. And I think the perspective of a boy growing into a man, I think that really tells us a lot about the beauty and the gravitas of the film as a whole. Oh yeah, and I also appreciate in the film that you watch him become a better actor. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you see that when you talk to Eller and when you see him in social settings as we were at on Saturday, I mean, he truly, he has come into his own. There's a confidence level that now is he carries with him that I think definitely came from 
the filmmaking process of Boyhood. No, my question with that film, I love the film, but I'm wondering if a lot of voters are giving it best film because of the kind of degree of difficulty and Linklater's past body of work rather than the actual content of the narrative. What do you guys think? Do you think it's because of that goodwill of Linklater and as well as the difficulty of the actual mounting the project? Well, I think think there's a great difficulty to it, but it's basically what we've already seen from Linklater with the before trilogy. It's all in one film instead of spread out amongst three films. Right. What do you think, Ned, as a director? Um, I think I, th- I think you can't really talk about Boyhood without talking about the the interesting nature in which it was made, which is a filmmaking feat in itself, um, which I think definitely gives it an edge over other projects. But I, but I don't think that people are necessarily voting for it solely because of that. Um, I think I think people are able to look past sort of the, what might be considered a, a gimmick in a way and and see the film itself behind it, which is also perfectly deserving of accolades. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the biggest surprises of the night, which just thrilled me, was the Grand Budapest Hotel. Yes. Um, I, that was the, I, I was really pulling for Ray Fiennes for Best Actor for the oh. film. I'm perfectly, perfectly happy with Michael Keaton's win. But I love the Grand Budapest Hotel. Oh, Grand Budapest. And now you talk about a technical feat. Wes Anderson really does execute a technical feat here. With shooting with three different aspect ratios within the course of the film and using the color and the aspect ratios to define the different eras of what's happening at the Grand Budapest Hotel. I mean, this is just the script, the casting. This is close to a flawless film. Would he be the best director for you if you were voting as far as amongst the field? Um, it's a really tough year. <laughs> yeah, that's just yeah. it. Yeah. This is yeah. one of the toughest years uh, where we really have strong directors. We've got, you know, really strong performances, you know, like Eddie Redmayne. Well, Eddie Redmayne, the minute I saw him in the film, I said, hand him the Oscar. So I'm hoping next month somebody's going to hand him the Oscar. Um, but Grand Budapest, that was one of the things I, I really got into with um, Wes and his production designer, Adam Stockhausen when I interviewed them prior to the film's release, is talking about the challenges of the aspect ratio and the production design. And since that's obviously so much a part of the win, um, we're going to play that little clip right now. Well, I don't really love uh, um, uh, doing green screen. I mean, it's, I, 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 don't, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't have that much fun shooting on green screens. I would rather we make something. I mean, what, what, what did we do that way in this? That that was that could have been green screen work, or that was, or I don't know. I'm just throwing I mean, it over. Oh, you. okay, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds good. Well, we we went with the with the miniatures, which is which That's is a cute, much actually. more. Uh, there's a lot of stuff. There's the introduction to the hotel. There's the uh, there's the mountaintop observatory, and then there's the whole skiing, sledding, <laughs> bobsledding sequence. Yeah. Uh, is all is all is all uh, miniature work, and it's a much more. I mean, old-fashioned is one way to put it, but it's sort of an uh, older way of doing the exact same thing, but it's a handmade way of doing the exact same thing, uh, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, but, it's very fun. And, you know, the thing is also, well, when we do this stuff, you know, we use some paintings, we use some miniatures, we use the stuff that they might have, that, that, you know, they would have used in silent, you know, in uh, Georges uh, uh, Méliès-type uh, movies. I mean, as old as anything, but... We're still doing. It's all 
is digital galore. Digital I mean, uh, you know, there's so many. I mean, at least half of the shots of the movie have some kind of digital element that we've changed, something we've modified or polished or sped up one thing in the frame or replaced a bit of signage or all that sort of stuff. It's an amazing kind of luxury. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then even the miniatures themselves are, are put together. It's not just one big miniature that's just shot straight on. It's different pieces that are all in different scales, and then they get, they get assembled together uh, with green screen. Well, one of the really interesting aspects of this film is the fact that you and Bob Yeoman chose to shoot. Mul you've got multiple ratio aspect going on here. Mm -hmm. What led the two of you to even get that brainstorm idea and then implement it, and what kind of challenges did you have, if uh, any? Um, well... I always wanted to do a movie just in that, you know, sort of square uh, um, shape. Um, and, you know, every movie before 1950-something uh, was, done, was done that way. It's a very, you know, we, it's, the, it's the, the look you associate with movies of the period of our story. And um, but I but I always, but I'd always want to do it with a movie that wasn't a period movie. You know, I always I just like that shape. But I like that connection to movie history. Um, but it used to be that um, you couldn't. I mean, Bottle Rocket. We we had wanted to do that way. Mm. And you know, Polly Platt, who was the producer of Bottle Rocket. Did you ever meet Polly? Mm -hmm. No. But you know, Polly was a production designer. Mm -hmm. You know that, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Polly. Uh, I think Polly was Polly was the one who said. You know, we had shot our short. It was 16 millimeters, so it was just normal that it's that that shape. And Polly was kind of into that. Now, so Polly and I were sort of saying. You know, what Polly and I wanted to do was shoot Bottle Rocket black and white. Academy ratio, but in those days you couldn't even you could then sh screen the movie at like you know LACMA or something, but you know or or you could go to like the new art, but but you couldn't release it in you know multiplexes. In the case of that movie, it wouldn't have mattered because uh, nobody went to see it in any multiplex anyway, <laughs> so it would have been fine. I mean, we couldn't have, it, it wouldn't have held us back. We still would have broken the five hundred thousand dollar gross barrier, I'm sure. But so and that's what we did. Um, but um, but then the idea, so that was something I always wanted to do. Then the idea of having different shapes just sort of came out of that. I said, well, now we've got this 60s part, but that doesn't really, that's not particularly suited to the Academy ratio because it's, you know, it's, it doesn't represent that time. And then I thought, well, maybe we'll do this because now it's digital. Um, you know, in those, in those days, to project it, you would have to change the gate in all, every projector. You would have to change lenses and things, and it would be a technical issue. Now that everything is finished digitally, you know, they just press a button, and whatever you've done is going to be up there. Um, so um, that's a long-winded way of saying, you know, the reason we did it was because now you can, and it used to be really that you, it, you couldn't. And we're so used to looking on YouTube and seeing things change shape all the time, and I mean, people don't even notice it. The, 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 and, and then, in answer to the obstacles or challenges, about the obstacle challenge was the lawyers or whoever the lawyers were. One, as soon as they read this, whoa, 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 you know, you're obligated to deliver a movie in the aspect ratio of one point eight five to one, or two point zero to one, at the length of between ninety minutes and, 100. and so then we have like you know uh, probably seventy thousand dollars of legal arguments, um, you know, that are just all billed straight back to you know, all and at the end of which is me saying me saying. So, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. Uh, my only argument I could make, my only legal argument I could make, um, <laughs> and eventually it just sort of blew over, and we just did it.
wonderful, the wonderful Wes Anderson. Very long-winded answer, but I think it's a fun answer, and it explains how long some of these processes take for filmmakers to really see aspects come true that they want to have done. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Brian has given us the sound. Are you there, Ned? I am. Are we being played off? We are being played off. I am so glad you called. I am so oh. happy you participated, and, you're, and you will be here with your smiling face one day again soon. Yes, yes, I'm looking forward to it. In person. Thank you, Ned. So, thank you, Ned. Thank you, Lydia. Everybody can watch the video pack of this show with all the cool edits uh, later this week when the wonderful Lydia Hawk gets it done. Sound engineer Brian, Greg, all of our Twitter handles and Facebook pages will be on the video pack credits. So go to YouTube and watch it on Elias Entertainment. That's it for today. Um, I'll be back in two weeks. You'll be back in two weeks. Chad Miller's here again next week. And that's a wrap.